Okay, so this is a pediatric GI review for NCLEX. So we'll start out with some terms and concepts, and then we'll also review a little bit about fluid balance because we're gonna talk about nausea, vomiting, diarrhea with the pediatric patient. So we wanna remember that with the newborn, about 75% of the total body weight is water. In the infant, about 65% of the total body weight is water. And in the child and adolescent, about 50% of the total body weight is in water. In our assessment with the pediatric who has a history of nausea and vomiting and presents to the hospital or a question in NCLEX, we wanna be thinking about dehydration. So we wanna know with the patient with nausea and vomiting, have they had diarrhea as well? How long have they had the diarrhea for? We wanna know how for the newborn and infant uh, that are still wearing diapers, we want to know how many wet diapers is their baseline, how many is the child having now, so that we can assess whether or not the child is being is in a state of dehydration or not. Also, ideally, we'd like to know how much they weigh, and that way you can calculate the total water deficit um, based on their weight. So just to remind us of the stages of dehydration, we have mild, which is a three to five percent loss in their body weight. Moderate is six to nine percent loss, and severe is a greater than 10% um, weight loss. So this will be a review of disease states, and then we'll kind of talking about the nursing process and what's most important on assessment and interventions um, to kind of get ready for NCLEX. So Hirschsprung's disease, uh, this is an absence of ganglion in the affected area, which results in a lack of nervous stimulation. This usually affects the distal portion of the colon as well as the rectum. It's four times more common in males than females. The most severe complication is enterocolitis. So with any kind of um, infection and inflammation, you're gonna see fever, GI bleed, and explosive watery diarrhea. So GI bleed and explosive watery diarrhea are the two main things that we're gonna be watching for. Um, on assessment in the infant, there will be a failure to pass meconium and a refusal to suck. In children, you can see failure to thrive, which we talked about in the last podcast, and ribbon-like foul-smelling stool. So there are gonna be a few diseases where ribbon-like foul-smelling stool is going to be a key indicator and this is one of them. So Hirschsprung's disease, just remember ribbon-like foul-smelling stool. The management for Hirschsprung's disease is you're going to monitor fluid and electrolyte balance by monitoring the ins and outs. You're going to maintain a low fiber, high calorie, high protein diet. If they're going to go for a colonoscopy, you got to remember that there's going to be a bowel prep and then all the things that follow along with the bowel prep. Depending on whether or not they need surgery for like a resection of the affected area, there will be either a single stage, which requires no colostomy, a two stage, which requires a temporary colostomy, and a complication that you should be monitoring for if they go for surgery is a perforation, as well as colitis. So the main complication with the perforation that you're gonna monitor for is a rigid board-like abdomen. Those will be your keywords. Um, and then should the child get a temporary ostomy, you're gonna wanna teach them that the stoma should be moist and beefy red. Any changes in those, and there could be 
a lack of circulation to the ostomy and you want to also remind them about skin care because you want to prevent skin breakdown. Intussusception is a telescoping of one portion of the bowel into another. On assessment, there will be colicky abdominal pain. Most often the child will present with knees drawn to the chest. So your key indicator on test questions is going to be current jelly-like stools containing blood and mucus. So Hirschsprung's disease has ribbon-like foul-smelling stool and intussusception will be current red jelly-like stools because they contain blood and mucus. So the nursing interventions for this is you're going to monitor for perforation and you're going to monitor for normal brown stool, which will mean that the problem has resolved itself. Omphalocele is a herniation of the gastric sac through the umbilical ring. So immediately after birth, the sac is going to be covered with sterile gauze soaked in normal saline and then covered in plastic wrap to prevent moisture loss. You're going to monitor for signs and symptoms of infection and increased temperature. So there can be heat loss through the sac. Um, so you also want to monitor for hypothermia. There will be a staged reduction of the omphalocele, and this can take up to 12 months. So that's just something to educate the parents on. There are three main malabsorptive syndromes that NCLEX is most likely to test on. So that'll be lactose intolerance, celiac disease, and short bowel syndrome. Lactose intolerance is a congenital disease, and it's also pretty rare. There's a primary cause and a secondary cause. So the primary cause is a malabsorption of lactose. And secondary cause is damage to the intestines due to disease or infection. And the signs and symptoms of lactose intolerance are about one hour after eating, there will be abdominal pain, bloating, and flatulence. Celiac disease is atrophy of the villi of the small intestines in which they're unable to digest gluten. This leads to mucosal damage and further malabsorption. So the damaged intestines um, can also lead to further secondary effects of malabsorption and failure to thrive. So you just want to monitor for symptoms to appear, usually in the one to five year range. Hypertrophic pyloric stenosis is exactly what it sounds like. It's a thickening of the pyloric sphincter, which leads to a narrow opening. The classic findings on assessment are going to be an olive-shaped mass in the epigastrum just right of the umbilicus. The signs and symptoms that the child may present with are projectile vomiting, which is your biggest keyword indicator. This is usually right after eating. The child may also present with weight loss, dehydration, peristaltic waves that are visible across the epigastrum during and just after feeding. The management of hypertrophic pyloric stenosis uh, includes laparoscopic pyloromyotomy, the management involved in this is uh, the patient will get an NG tube and feedings usually begin four to six hours after surgery or as prescribed and you want to remind the parent to burp the child frequently. Cleft lip and palate. So cleft lip is a failure of the maxillary process to fuse with the nasal elevations and this is a cosmetic issue. It happens in one in every 600 live births, and the goal with this is to minimize the deformity. Cleft palate, on the other hand, is a failure of the hard or soft palate to fuse, and this can lead to uh, feeding, speech, and dental issues throughout life. So this will end up getting a surgical repair.
The nursing interventions for cleft lip and cleft palate include support breastfeeding, you're going to maintain the airway, and you're going to protect the suture site from infection. You're going to teach the parent modified feeding techniques, which include hold the infant upright and direct the formula to the side and the back of the mouth so as to prevent aspiration. You're going to keep a suction bulb syringe close by at all times, especially during feeding. After repair, avoid positioning the child on the side of the repair or in the prone position or placing objects in or around the mouth. You're going to encourage the parent to hold the child as well. Esophageal atresia is when the esophagus terminates before reaching the stomach. So this could either be a blind pouch or it could be a fistula. On assessment, you're going to see frothy saliva in the nose and the mouth. You're going to see coughing, choking, and possibly cyanosis. So the interventions include keeping the child greater than 30 degrees to prevent aspiration. They may have a nasogastric or an orogastric tube to minimize regurgitation post-op. And then, so after the operation, you're going to monitor for infection and monitor ins and outs. So gastroesophageal reflux disorder, or GERD, allows contents from the stomach to kind of pass back up the esophagus. So on assessment, you'll see passive regurgitation or emesis and poor weight gain with the child. The interventions include assess the amount and characteristics of emesis. You're going to be looking for blood because blood is a really bad sign. You're going to assess the vomiting and times of feeding and how long it takes for the child to become symptomatic after feeding to kind of help rule out hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. And you're also going to assess dehydration. So you're going to want to be counting the number of wet diapers and how often this is happening. As far as diet education goes, you're going to remind the mother again that they're going to want to burp the child frequently and they're going to want to minimally handle the child post-feeding. Just kind of like let the baby sit and rest and burp them when they need to, but to not agitate the child so that the contents stay in the stomach. An NG tube may be prescribed for severe regurgitation with poor growth. You're going to want to protect the airway and you're also going to want to make sure that the food stays down there. For toddlers, you're going to want to educate the parents that they want to feed the child solids first and then follow with liquids after. Okay, we can't talk about GI without talking about any poisoning because this is going to be one of the most common things that the kids present with. So, NCLEX wants you to know these steps for any poisoning. Step 1, assess the child. Step 2, terminate exposure to the poison. Step 3, identify the poison. Step four, take measures to prevent absorption of the poison. Step five, document any findings, the type of poison, the treatment that you took to treat the child. And then you're gonna document the child's response to the treatment. Um, you're gonna think ABCs first and don't withhold CPR if necessary. Okay, so step one, assess the child. How does the child look? Is the child tachypnic? Is the child hypoventilating? Are they... How's their mentation? How are they reacting to the parents? How are they reacting to the environment? All these things are super important when you're assessing the child. You're gonna terminate the exposure to the poison. You're gonna ask the parents, what did the child eat? Or what did they spill on themselves? And then once you find that out, you can take measures to prevent any additional absorption of the poison. Step five is document the findings, the type of poison, and the treatment measures that you took. And then you're gonna document the child's response to that treatment. So let's talk about lead poisoning. 
Lead affects every system, but the CNS has the most serious consequences. Most common cause of lead poisoning is ingestion or inhalation. So for the one to two year old, there are universal screenings. So there are two labs that you kind of need to know for this um, as far as blood lead levels go, either greater than 70 or greater than nine micrograms. Both numbers can pop up on tests, so you just want to remember that greater than 70 or greater than 9 micrograms is bad. Assess ABCs first and treat the child, not the poison. With lead poisoning specifically, milk is the best fluid to give. With acetaminophen poisoning, the seriousness is calculated by the dosage ingested times the time. So when did they do it and how much did they take? The antidote is acetylcysteine or mucamist and this one you're going to want to give with juice or soda just to make it easier to go down. So the steps for acetaminophen poisoning are 1. Gastric lavage, 2. Give the charcoal, 3. Give the mucamist. So the NCLEX steps for assessing any poison is assess the child, terminate the exposure, ID the poison, take measures to prevent further absorption of the poison. So and when the parent comes to the ED saying they took the whole bottle of acetaminophen two hours ago, step one is limit the absorption. So lavage them, get all that stuff out of there. Two, give activated charcoal. And then three, give the antidote. So aspirin poisoning for the child, uh, severe toxicity is when they've taken three to 500 milligrams per kilogram. The interventions for aspirin poisoning include activated charcoal, IV sodium bicarb, and vitamin K if bleeding is present. You're also going to give them oxygen if the provider decides to prescribe it. So the GI symptoms that you can see with aspirin poisoning include nausea and vomiting. The vomiting can lead to hypokalemia, hypoglycemia, and metabolic acidosis. You may also see increased thirst in this child. This child may be confused, they may experience tinnitus, and they may be tachypnic. So these are all things that you're just going to monitor. If they're tachypnic, give them O2. Um, for confusion, you're going to try to reorient them. This may be related to their acidotic state or their hypoglycemic state. So yeah, that pretty much sums up most of the content areas that I've seen in the NCLEX prep books. With GI disorders, the main thing that we're going to assess for upon initial presentation is, or in the question base, is, is the child dehydrated? So the main question that we're going to ask related to dehydration in the child is, how many wet diapers does your child usually have? Okay, so that about sums up uh, pediatric GI review. I'm sure there's a few things that I missed in there. Um, we'll touch more on labs and electrolyte imbalances and acid-base imbalances as well in a future podcast. So look out for that one.